My dear friends, welcome to another episode of the Inevitable Podcast. I'm your host, Pedro Sorrentino. As you know, I'm a VC, I'm an author, entrepreneur. Sometimes I also play the guitar. But anyway, I'm the founder and CEO of Atman, and our mission here is to partner with Inevitable People. In this episode, I had the honor of talking to Jeff Williams. Jeff works as the Senior Vice President of Industry Solutions and Strategy at Altvia. Altvia is basically the Rolls Royce of venture capital software. They're the leading provider of CRM and investor deal management systems, a company that started in 2006 and supports about 40,000 limited partners. Had a chance to meet with Jeff as we were analyzing what CRM we were supposed to buy at Atman. Uh, right now, uh, we are not, as an emerging firm, you know, rolling in Rolls Royces, but I have no question, no, no doubts that, you know, soon we will. But during that process, we had the opportunity to meet each other and also impressed with him, his critical thinking, and honestly, his absolute passion for life and the game of venture. So there aren't that many people in this world where you actually, you get excited about geeking out and nerding out about venture. And Jeff is definitely one of those. So you know, in this episode, we talked about his upbringing in Colorado, the beginning of his career working as an analyst and an associate sourcing and evaluating investment opportunities. And then the last few years as he's been helping build Altvia into the powerhouse that it is today. We also did uh, deep dives into the GPLP relationships and how all of that is just evolving to a new level. For those that don't know, Jeff also worked at Green Spring Associates and uh, they are a tier one uh, LP, basically, considered to, you know, by many uh, to just be one of the best investors out there that has started investing multiple different funds and now also invests directly. And it was a wonderful conversation. I hope you like it. But Jeff, I, you know, I just really appreciate you taking the time to be here with us in uh, the Inevitable Podcast. I think that it's uh, the reason why, um, you know, aside from being the first other podcaster as well with the most professional setup than yeah. every single other guest we've ever had, uh in 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 the show i uh the reason why i wanted i extended this invitation to you is because it was very clear to me that you're extremely passionate about what you do and and you and you like the the small details of things which is mm -hmm. precisely how i operate in the types of people that i enjoy uh partnering with so thanks for being here and uh you know i'm excited thanks to for having me yeah, no, thanks for having me. And uh, we're going to do it on my podcast, too. So it's going to be a first for both of us. And uh, yeah, no, I'm thrilled. And I totally agree. It was clear the, the first time we met that uh, we had like-minded uh, viewpoints. And so, hey, I'm always looking to swap notes and, you know, good ideas. So I love it. That's Glad right. to be here. So, you know, I lived in Colorado, right, for, you know, grew up in Brazil and Sao Paulo, but lived in Boulder for for three and a half years from uh, when I was uh, 20 until uh, 23. So it was a very different life. Just, uh, it, you know, everyone driving a Subaru, brewing their own beer. Uh, and, yeah. uh, um, and Boulder is a very special place in, in, at least it has a very special place in my heart. 
I'd love to just learn more. How was your your childhood? Like, how was it growing up in Colorado? And um, like, just before we start talking about venture stuff, like, what's the story of your life? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I'm close to being a Colorado native. I I uh, I think it was I was about five or six when I first moved to Colorado, and um, and so I don't really remember too much else. And and now at, at the age that I am, just just turned 40 and I'm, I feel much older, but, um, wow, you don't look 40 at I've, all. I've now got, yeah, <laughs> that's what people say. And yet I feel like I'm 60, you know, I don't get any sort of benefit at all of that in terms of how it feels to wake up as me. But, um, yeah, no, so I've got a couple of young kids. And I think that the thing that I would say about growing up in Colorado is that, um, like I didn't get to choose that, you know, that was something that my parents sort of, you know, uh, dictated for me. And yet um, I feel tremendously fortunate, you know, to have done that. I, it, I don't think at the time I realized it, but just sort of all the, the kind of stereotypical things about Colorado, the uh, brew your own beer, all that stuff. But the outdoor lifestyle, you know, like having access to the mountains and all that stuff. And I think that, you know, um, still today, but certainly as I was growing up here, I think that Colorado still has at least enough of the kind of vibe that it was founded upon. Right. Which was like, we, you know, um, sort of take risks. We, you know, go across the sort of whole Midwest through the mountains to find gold. And, but we're also sort of, you know, all kind of new here and it's not home to any of us. And we're, you know, kind of embracing of, um, you know, other people being here. And so, you know, uh, for me, the, the story is tremendously fortunate, um, to have grown up here, not having the choice. And so I always felt the need to, um, to kind of come back here and start a family sort of karma, like, you know, to pass that on to my kids. And it, it was extremely convenient that the technology scene is what it is here, you know? And I think that there's still something about this entrepreneurial spirit and, you know, the way that Colorado was first settled. So, uh, it, it set up very nicely to come home, you know, and, and kind of get to enjoy still a lot of family that lives here, raise kids here and also be in a, in a place where, you know, there's a, a healthy technology ecosystem and and all that. So, you know, no place I'd rather be, really. I could do a little bit at this age without the winters, but other than that, we're, we're all set. That's great. That's great. Yeah, I mean, I, I lived in Boulder right, for three years. I uh, I loved it. It was uh, it was wonderful. It's when I started my first company and I learned uh, and then I joining joining SendGrid back when when Techstars was just a bunker. Um, it was a very yeah. different different time and it's um colorado is a really special place I, the only reason why i decided to move uh to miami versus con considering colorado actually are two mm. but one of them is is the winter i um i i am i have no problem with the heat but i just don't like um layering up never been that big of a fan of uh, all the snow sports although the nature is spectacular uh yeah. and colorado is i think it's one of the happiest states as well people are genuinely happy to live in colorado and differently than you know california they don't have an attitude about the fact that they appreciate what they have <laughs> so it's uh it's yeah. it's a it's a good humil it's a combination of happiness and humility that i certainly appreciate yeah, no, for sure. I, and uh, I, I I do enjoy skiing. I'm a, I grew up skiing. Unfortunately, uh, one of the downsides of the growth in Colorado has been, you know, access to 
you know, um, the the reality of skiing, you know, on weekends, for example. I mean, the traffic has just gotten so bad. So I do a little bit less of that, and I agree. I could probably, in the absence of actually skiing, you know, do do away with the the winter um, stuff. But yeah, no, it's a great place. You know, people are all you know happy to be here, and I think it's great the growth, right? Even if it, the cost of sort of ski traffic won't have you because um you know for the most part we're all new here right even if you grew up here uh everybody came here at, at some point and uh more the merrier and and we've seemed to maintain the culture of, you know we're all sort of happy to be here and we're welcoming welcoming of others and what have you so yeah. we're here for it now, i've had many special moments in in colorado it was the first time i was offered a term sheet for my first company where i did all the fuck ups at the same time in a condensed amount of 12 months as a first time founder yeah and you just like <laughs> never forget that right i mean like there's all you always remember where you were in that moment and uh the horrifying mistakes that you made and all that right yeah. so no, but i have uh one of the forget. most uh, special friends i have in our world of venture capital is uh one of the founders of this firm called uh range ventures uh, Adam Burroughs, mm -hmm. and you know he's uh, a longtime friend. He used to work at um, at uh, Service Magic, that then you know merged with Angel, uh, yeah. Angel's List, became this like seven billion dollar public company. The only company to this date to figure out how to make that category profitable. Um, and there yeah. have been so many YC startups that you know, failed miserably, and it's uh, we we. He, the relationship I have with Adam is, I think, the most one of the most precious ones I have because we managed to continue to play different games in different chapters of our lives, but with the same values mm -hmm. and principles. So, you know, ended up becoming an LP in range. Uh, also made the introduction for the first family office. They wrote the first large, like, like a, you know, that first moment when you're raising your fund and you receive one first large check because yeah, he yeah. was just kind of yeah. like passing the hat along and now you know they've had uh, multiple up rounds and um and they are a big um believer in, in into the local ecosystem as older players um don't work with the same type of uh, positive violence if you may because it's also comfortable sure. in a way right and then so competition is, is is always really good and i think it's it's wonderful to see what's happening with 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 the ecosystem in in, in Colorado, um, yeah. Have you guys gotten a bunch of people from the pandemic, similar to because you know for me Miami, if you ask me two years ago, would you move to Miami? I'm like yes, uh, but uh, what? Let me know if I should take a Glock or a Colt because the minute I land here, I'm going to just shoot myself. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it has changed, and. Uh, you know, now you do have yeah. a, a contingent of uh, highly ambitious and smart people, probably around, you know, 500 individuals. So different than, you know, the 100 plus thousand that you have in the Bay Area. But uh, how are things now, yeah. you know, with, with COVID in the Colorado ecosystem? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think that, like there were always people that were moving here, you know, sort of uh, especially like the early in the career, you know, age. And, um, and so, I, you know, I think that that's sort of always been a thing and it's a big part of the growth that, that Colorado has seen. But I think that there's been tremendous growth, my understanding at least, in, in terms of sort of the mountains, right? So actually my wife and I were um, recently kind of just poking around the market for, you know, a mountain house. And um, early on, 
you know, in, in COVID, I was like, well, we should hold off, you know, because like you were hearing these stories about people that were like all levered up, uh, you know, with like 20 Airbnbs, right? Like to making a business of, uh, of owning rental properties. And I suspected that there was going to be this huge sort of, you know, fallout from that, right? Like people weren't coming to stay at those things. And so I was like, oh, like we'll just hold off here and wait for, you know, the prices of these things to come down and total opposite, you know, like the, the prices in, of Colorado mountain real estate have gotten nuts. And I, my understanding is there's a lot of people that, you know, in the sort of new work from home, um, you know, sort of environment were like, Hey, like, let's go to Colorado, you know, and, and in cases where they're coming like from California markets where they were, you know, um, selling into very healthy prices. And then we're like, Hey, like come pay cash in Colorado. So it, my understanding is there's been tremendous growth, like in the mountains and stuff. Um, I think in Denver too, I mean, we, you know, we've basically at, at all via doubled in terms of headcount, um, since, well, really even since like the fall of last year, but, um, and so a lot of new people that like have just recently moved to Colorado and stuff like that. So I don't know, it's been kind of hot. It, like, it's almost like been, certainly been a beneficiary of it but in a way i think it's like also been a place where people were like oh like you know it's a pandemic whatever we're still move, still moving to colorado like you know so i don't know how much that happens in, in a lot of places but maybe it was an excuse for a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't have that can now work from home and stuff so i don't know it's been definitely healthy though yes well i would not if without a pandemic uh, there's no way i would have moved to miami uh because you know i i i felt uh stuck in San Francisco. Still have a place there in Palo Alto uh, for an office and home and so forth. But like just the, the, the Kent, uh, I would I couldn't imagine myself leaving because of the network effects. And then suddenly everyone stopped meeting and then there was, uh, everything went online and you realize that you can actually get a ton done. It's not the same and it doesn't replace, but this hybrid life certainly is the future. And but uh, the, the decentralization of the ethos of the Bay Area, it's not just happening here, it's happening globally. We continue to oh, see yeah. um, billions of dollars getting poured into the e different ecosystems from Southeast Asia to Latin America. And the interest has been tremendous. So in that sense, I um, I think it's, 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 it's wonderful. And, and, and I like the fact as an immigrant that the, the US offers quite a lot of mobility. I think it's one of the few countries where um, any city in the United States with about 50,000 people kind of has the same uh, the same uh, back end, if you may. There's a Target, yeah. there are a few Starbucks, an Italian restaurant, a sushi <laughs> place. It's, uh, yeah. it's a good thing about America in that sense. Yeah, um, no, for sure. Well, and, you know, to your point, um, you know, like one of the things that we're talking and hearing and thinking a lot about um is the you know it's become so cliche right the new normal and and all that stuff but it's also convenient cliches are convenient sometimes so um like you know we've always been really big on sort of how lps and gps were going to be interacting together and, and uh how technology could facilitate that and like one of the things that you'd find is that you know it's a natural place where people are like oh it's kind of weird right to like you know, raise big sums of money and not, not get together. And it was, and it is, you know, for a minute, people will go back to meeting, 
to your point, right? But like in certain cases, LPs have been like, listen, like way easier. We can attend like four annual meetings in one day, you know? And, uh, and so like there, there's certainly elements that like, I, don't, I just don't think that people are ever going back. It's pretty silly to think about like the reasons you would jump on a plane and like rot That's right. in a hotel for a couple of days to have one meeting, you know? It's crazy. In 2019, I went to Brazil 18 times. Can you, from California, Ooh. 18 times. Well, I also had, um, aside from, from the business in Sao Paulo, I uh, had a, a girlfriend as well. So it was a double motivation, but still it was uh, <laughs> exhausting in terms of, uh, of, uh, of, of traveling. Although I, for me as a, as a GP, um, I'm fortunate to have uh, long-term relationships, having been in the industry for about seven years. So I have mm -hmm. a threshold mentally that depends on the the size of the check. This is also for LP money. I, I want to meet in person. So for so this new chapter with, with Atman is very different. When I was uh, when I started 1VC, if you were not a part of ISIS, Syria, or North, North Korea, I'll take your money. Uh, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Now is the well, how what how what a stand up guy you see you are yeah <laughs> well the reality yep, every ones, emerging yeah. manager operates that way it's just a few say it on the record but it's true totally and that's why I love you is because you're willing to say what we're all thinking and some of us so I I think I um there's definitely times I'm like I probably shouldn't have said that but I I tend to err on the side of. Uh, you know, saying it out loud too, as well. And so I'm, you know, I'm always a big fan of everybody, somebody saying it, what all of us are thinking. So there we go. Um, awesome. Well, changing topics a little bit. So there's that moment where you decide, right, where you're going to go to school and what you know, your major is going to be. How is that decision-making process for you? This is... Um... Yeah. Yeah, you know, so one... That, that, that's actually one part of my life that I feel, you know, slightly cheated about, or I guess, like, I see the way that, especially, you know, in my time at Greenspring and, and getting to know, you know, GPs and early on when you're sort of like copying and pasting bios, you know, from big, you know, brand name venture firms, you, you know, there was a lot of like, damn, you know, how did a 17, 18 year old have like the you know, vision to put that career path together, you know, even if only on, on their education. So I, that wasn't really me. I mean, you know, I, I think thinking back, it was sort of like, um, well, obviously, right. Like this stuff's important. I wasn't like trying to sort of, you know, blow up the scorecard or the grade sheet, whatever. But, um, but I don't think I, I really sort of was that conscious of it, you know, at the time. Um, and, and so actually one of the bigger kind of motivating factors for me, um, was actually kind of wanting to remove myself a little bit, not, not necessarily from Colorado, but, but I went to Cherry Creek high school here in Denver. And that's like, in many cases, like a small college, you know, and it's very clicky and all that, all that. And I, I loved it, you know, uh, it's a great place to, to go to high school, but, um, in many cases, like most of the students go to Colorado schools. And so it's kind of just like high school all over again, and they don't necessarily meet too many people. And so I was actually, the one thing I was thinking was that like, I didn't want to do that, you know? Um, and so I went to school uh, at the University of Utah. And um, that for me was like, um, 
I think people still are surprised by this. I don't know. They shouldn't be, but that's probably the biggest, like, even with CU, I mean, CU is pretty close to Eldora, but like the university of Utah is like 25, 30 minutes away from like Snowbird and Alta. And so, um, it was definitely a situation where like you could be a full-time student if you made your schedule right. And you could also ski, you know, 60, 75 days a year. And so that was, um, sort of a thing for me. And I was, I don't know, I'm a little bit of a contrarian as well. So it was like, you know, um, do something different, go, go somewhere else. Um, and take on like a little bit of an adventure, meet new people and stuff like that. So that was kind of really what motivated me. And I, you know, that's why I say, I like, I, I see the way that people like where they went to undergrad and then business school and stuff like that. And I'm like, wow. I just didn't have, have that. Like I realized in hindsight now, I wish I had. That's, that's why I say I almost feel cheated, but um, yeah, but it worked out. You know, I think that like everything um, happens for a reason and, and certainly the like series of events, I suppose, that, that led me to that. And then onward from there um, were worth something. So yeah. it, it, I happen to love Salt Lake City. I mean, I, you know, it's got the rap that it does. But, you know, being a student in Salt Lake City is a totally different experience and uh, it's just a, you know, great place to be and obviously great skiing and all that stuff. So I, I loved it. Yeah. yeah, I drove through Utah when I was moving from Colorado to California and I loved it. It was organized, clean, just very <laughs> functional. I guess I'm still traumatized yeah. from the tenderloin in San Francisco, but, but basically kind of like <laughs> the, um, and the nature was, uh, was spectacular. So, um, uh, yes. Uh, yeah, man, you can basically drive like from the, you know, either direction, north to south in Utah. And it's like five climates, basically. It's wild. And, and you would also pass like four or five you know, incredible national parks. Exactly. I don't know what the number yeah, I wanted to do Utah so, because of that. Um, really want to go to yeah. Moab uh, these days and uh, just uh, stay there for, for, I love deserts and, um, and I hate Vegas. I think Vegas combines everything I dislike about the United States in one place, 24 seven. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I love Vegas for like, I don't know, five, the first five hours. You know that you're there and then you're like oh, you just can't get out of there fast enough and you're like why did i even get a hotel room next time i'll just get a locker you know how long have i been here you know get me out of here type thing so i i feel for you there have you ever been to lake powell i've never been no where is that okay so here's my um my crystal ball tells me that lake powell is going to be like Probably not same scale as Tulum, but it's going to be like this new hipster spot. And I say that because I've been seeing and hearing so much about people like, you know, during the, the pandemic going to Lake Powell, which is a great place to spend, you know, uh, any for any reason, but especially uh, during the conditions. And so it is actually, you know, a perfect example of like, oh, like a big part of it's in Utah. And I think people sort of miss that. But um, it's like a, it feels like it's Mars. And it's this huge lake and there's all sorts of different places. You rent a houseboat, you find a little, you know, thing. You never see anybody else for a week. And you're like sort of living on Mars. It's amazing. Well, it's sounds, amazing. You got to go there. Sometime. I will. Yeah, for sure. I've been, I mean, just a few days ago, I have had so many friends. Uh, I guess I, I'm, I'm, I'm friends with a lot of party animals and then uh, they, uh, sure. 
they can't stay that long without you know and then Tulum now is it's a free land uh, <laughs> you know you know I've, I mean I've seen some videos and it's uh, it's crazy uh, I think you know I was always thinking about I've been to Tulum twice it's like how is that pop have you ever been I have I've also been twice yeah yeah so, so if you think about it from like I'm always very curious on how things work from a business standpoint I've always operated that way as a kid I think this is why I ended up in venture but then it's like, how is it functional? Who pays for that? It's just like a little strip, but the entire yeah. the whole thing outside of it is all, you know, it's, it's a poor Mexi Mexican village. So I definitely think, and then mm -hmm. for the most part, they screw you over with, with credit cards. Everything's cash-based. So there's no other explanation for me, but that that's a great place for the cartels to loan their money. Um, totally. I think, you know, that's, I think, what, totally. what makes <laughs> Tulum work. <laughs> So we, we haven't talked about this no. and you've literally just said my exact feeling. So my first experience in Tulum, um, it was probably like 2010, 2011. And, uh, do you remember Gilt Group? Yes, so there was, of course. Yes. Like the, yes, the, the yeah, Jet Setter for, uh, was the sort of uh, luxury goods. Yeah. 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 Um, it felt to me like the first flash sale, like private club vibe you know it was free you just didn't invite whatever but um and then that those businesses went on to just print money and you know then also just kind of disappear a little bit like groupon you know that we could talk all day about that but anyway so my my wife at the time girlfriend um had found like a, a tulum jet setter deal and she was like showing me pictures she's like oh my god look at this place it's amazing and like tulum is actually off the grid Right. So like, it's like, oh, you're like off the grid. And, and I think maybe she was, you know, kind of caught up in the sort of allure of that as a marketing term, less, you know, kind of thinking about it literally. And so, yeah, we got there and it was like, I would like the guy, you know, it, it was a, um, a New Yorker expat, like, you know, uh, he looked like Spicoli from um, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, like, uh, blonde curly hair surfer from New York, <laughs> yes. you know, bought this like mansion on the beach and turned it into a uh, uh, bed and breakfast breakfast. And he's like, you cannot use your hairdryer, you know, all this, that, and the other. And it was sort of like, like, why can't you do that? I'm like, babe, it's off the grid, but it's amazing. Like totally like what is going on in Tulum to sustain and like, you know, how did that, how did this whole like hipster influencer thing happen? Was it staged? You know, like it's. It, I have so many more questions than answers, unfortunately. Yes, for you, well, I do. You know, about Tulum. This it's a, it's a great point. I do think that this is, is basically an Instagram mirage, where you just fly a bunch of very attractive women and they keep posting pictures, and then it kind of attracts everyone. Yeah. Um, and it's, uh, I, I went there with a, with a former uh, uh, girlfriend, and we stayed at this uh, a hotel. The the nomad and i remember having a little bit of a, of a fight with her i was like we're paying this for like a homeless thing like this what is this tent in the middle of nowhere it's basically <laughs> i have no problem connecting with nature but you know nature and god they are available 24 7 and it can be free you don't need to pay a premium for that yeah you don't have to go to tulum turns out yeah um so it, it's nice and it is great what, what annoyed me though is that given how i see the my spiritual practices in the spiritual world every time i see these things getting ultra commercialized 
um, it, it, you know, and, and and it's not it's not necessarily uh, cheap. Every time, I, like you ask me, what's the my favorite restaurant in the city of San Francisco? It's Orin Hummus because it's consistent. It's the best return over equity that you can possibly find. The service is fantastic. The food is good, and it and if and, and it works for multiple occasions. Uh, it's not going to be a Michelin crazy you know thing. And the amount of money you spend on a regular dinner there. Um, and it's not even that's the question is not about being able to afford it or not. You and I can pay those checks. That's not the problem. It's just what you get for it because it's all sprinkled in this Instagram filter of like, oh, I'm going to be Zen and I smell the Palo Santo. <laughs> There's a, totally. You know. No, what? So, and that, that's why I vibe with you, Pedro, because you're a little bit of the contrarian too. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> come on. Like, I feel that way about a little bit about. Um, like the farm to table thing, you know, there's times when I'm like, like, so I'm not, you know, anti farm to table, but there are often times when it's like, Oh, you, you have to check out this new, especially, you know, Denver Boulder, right? You got to check out this new farm to table place. And you go there. It's like, this is not good. It's just not good. And, and so you know, you're paying twice the price and, and everyone's like, there's like memes, right? I, I always imagine that those places are where like the memes where like people are like standing on their booth, like three people at once to take a picture of their meal. Um, so I feel you now it's like, Hey, like, like some, sometimes, and, but I appreciate that, that some people's definition or interpretation or opinion or whatever of, of best is wide open. Right. So they can have those, but, um, but I'm with you, man. It's like, is it really? Yeah. You know, the best. <laughs> it's interesting. Best it's interesting, and I think that these little parts of the world they kind of pop up, and um, and then they 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 sustain themselves. It's uh, New Year's Eve parties in Brazil are very similar in that way. So, like four or five very wealthy entertainment groups or individuals will say, "We're going to make that beach in the Northeast happen." For and you know, New Year's in Brazil is always a very big party. And it's kind of like there's the party. Yeah, I was just thinking like, right? that's something I want to do before I die, by the way. I'll oh, swap notes with you. We, I, I will be more than happy to be a phenomenal mentor for you, your wife, family. Like there, are, you can have a yeah. lot of fun with, you can fly the kids, you can just go as a couple. Like there are just many, many different ways. And how um, long would the flight be, by the way? You said you went 18 times from California. Like, how long is that flight? The fastest flight is to connecting through Houston via United. And door-to-door -door is about 18 hours. From the minute you get into the okay. Uber in the city of San Francisco all the way into your destination. So, But that's eight, it's 18, 20 hours for you to be in Sao Paulo. And you're going to have to fly up again to the northeast of the of the country another you know half a day, probably. Uh, giving yeah. check-in and logistics and, and so forth. So yeah, um, worth it though. Sorry, uh, I interrupted you. You're saying good, the man. New Year's. Well, no, yeah. I, they do the same thing. Uh, for instance, I spend my New Year's in this in this beach town in the northeast of Brazil called Carneiros, and that that place is a is a complete Instagram flex. And what happened was that you know the first mm. it's a very poor city, um, and the first night the and I, I spent and I would admit it this no problem at all. Uh, well, like 15 days, COVID doesn't exist. I was partying and, you know, and having fun and uh, didn't catch anything, thank thankfully. But the 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 first night they had, there was a party. Second night, police comes in. They shut down the entire thing, but they shut down the city. 
the city has no infrastructure at all in any way, shape or form. So because they bring everything just for these parties, um, which it might have been how it was in the early days of, uh, of, of, of Tulum. I think this is the, con the business ahead. concept of like, how do you make a place happen? Right. And, and make people want to go. Um, it's it's fascinating. For sure. Um, and yeah. somebody's doing it pretty well in Tulum. Yes. It sounds like Brazil, well, too. I, I suspect Let's figure it out. that it is the cartels because uh, just how the payment mechanisms work there with the lack of connection and ATMs that can't spill out U.S. dollars in the Great middle cash of that, businesses, yeah. that strip. And, you know, fighting the cartels is much, much harder. Like they're way better organized than, 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 than the Taliban or ISIS. Right or all the white supremacy stuff. Like they they run legit business. I mean, it's very illegitimate, but like they got to get their shit together, and it's a combination of like business acumen with uh, military, you know, slash terrorist. It's not easy. Uh, um, I think it's horrible. I'm not saying that I'm pro, but if you think about it, you know, in terms yeah, of yeah. like how are they organized as a, as as a business, um, it's very hard, very hard. So that's why they get shit. Totally. Well, if they weren't well organized then you know we wouldn't be talking about them because they you know should not be around so they're clearly doing something right given that at the end of the day it is illicit activity and yet they're extremely difficult to, to bring down so yes now i hear you imagine and, if uh, instead of a eric reese the lean startup you had uh, the escobar method <laughs> yeah so, and it probably exists it's just so closely held because you know it's the recipe book everybody wants. So yes. let's find it. <laughs> well, um, and then, you know, you coming back to your story, Jeff. So you graduated and yeah. how was the whole process of getting a job at, at Greenspring? And then for those that don't know, um, I would say that uh, Greenspring is just like I, when we were on the first call with 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 with, with you guys at, at, at Altview, we were like, oh, this is the Rolls Royce of uh, venture capital infrastructure, <laughs> and we are still buying Toyotas. So maybe one day we'll get there. Yeah. Uh, um, and then I would say that, uh, at least in my interpretation, you know, Greenspring would be considered also almost like the Rolls Royce of, of limited partners. Um, and there aren't that many uh, that have been doing what they do the way they do for you know 25 30 years and so forth because god knows what what you had to have in your mind 30 years ago to say yes i'm going to start a business that only invests in venture firms so just learning more about green spring the story and how you ended up there i think it would be it would be fascinating for for our audience yeah well it's it's a wild story um and I mean, the, the short and sweet of it is, is when I finished school, I actually didn't go right to Greenspring. I spent um, some time with uh, my oldest brother who was, so I was a finance major and I come from like a hardcore finance family. And um, what, what does that mean? And I, I <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> it's, you know, talking about cartel. No, it's like, <laughs> so my dad is, you know, uh, effectively a financial planner. Um, and my brothers and, and then my, so I have two brothers that, that are also like CFPs. And then, um, I've got a sister who's like, you know, CPA. So, um, in a way I sort of felt like, oh yeah, like finance, but, but also like I was, I was planning when I finished school to go to work with my brother, 
and and so I thought like it's kind of a finance family. I dig finance, like I, I really do. And the cool thing about finance is like trading stocks and things like that, right? And so I went to work, you know, with my brother, and he uh, at the time happened to be, you know, uh, living with his family in kind of the greater Baltimore area. So it was one of these jobs. It was effectively like a stockbroker, right? And uh, and so like you you know you have to pass a series of tests so hard. I got like geeked out to the thing like. And, and I was super stoked, but, but ultimately I realized like pretty quickly it was a, so it was a non or like a commission draw type thing. Right. So like, you had to sort of sell all these like investments. And then, so you got, you went like first six months without being paid or something like that. Right. And I'm like right out of college. I paid my way uh, through college myself as well. So, awesome. um, like I was bartending at night and, um, and like, maybe, well, I guess it was like weekends, two weekends or one day per weekend. Right. And, um, so I, I was also at that time, like being like, this isn't finance, like this is sales, like, you know, like everything, you know, about like valuation and like, um, you know, whack and all the sort of, you know, things that, that were interesting about finance. It was none of well, that. The interest were so in anyway, so, cause you were getting compensated on fees on whatever you sold. Right. Totally. Yeah, it's really a sales job, right? So like um, you, and there's all sorts of, you know, uh, regulation and all that stuff, but I didn't feel like, like at the end of the day, your job was like to sell something to, to somebody. And frankly, at times you're sort of like, I don't know if this is the thing, but like I also kind of need to get paid here. So um, so I was really bartending, you know, uh, on weekends to, to just to sort of have some money, you know? and waiting this out but i was also very conflicted because it was like i don't know if this is for me but also um it felt like you know the name of that game is to like build a sort of clientele right and and then you're kind of stuck with the clientele and it, it there was always this conscious thought of like i want to live in colorado i feel like i must raise my children in colorado or you know be sort of met with some uh terrible fate so anyways um one night while i was bartending uh, and it was like a California pizza kitchen that had just opened. So it wasn't like, you know, a bar or anything like that. But um, one of the partners at the time, and, and still uh, one of the partners, uh, Jim Lim, actually you know came and sat down at the bar with his wife. And I got to chatting with him. And we, we sort of hit it off right away. And I was telling him what I was doing, you know, um, with this sort of stock job, as I'll call it. Um, and he, you know, I could just sort of say, he was like, you know what? It's really funny. Like, uh, he gave me his card. He was like, we should, you know, talk more sometime because we're going to be, you know, he told me what, that, that he worked in venture capital. And I, you know, knew kind of right away. I took, I'd taken a, a course my senior year only on venture capital and I got geeked, you know? And so, um, I was like, Ooh, was, you know, and it's also just like one of those things to, like, Ooh, venture capital is very exotic when you don't know much about it and all that stuff. So, yeah. They were looking to hire an analyst. We, you know, at the time, um, it wasn't a good fit. They were actually hiring like sort of more kind of finance accounting type role, but it came, and, uh, it came back around and Jim had reached out like six months after that. And, um, and so like, Hey, we're going to, you know, actually go through a process and hire an analyst. And so, um, went through it, you know, got the job, felt like I was, um, totally out of my league and, and it triggered something for me that remains still today, which was like, um, you really can do people are capable of amazing things and especially when 
they're like motivated by being sort of an underdog, you know, like that, that, that was a little bit how I felt. I hadn't gone through the sort of, you know, education path that a lot of, you know, my peers had and, and stuff like that. And so it, it just motivated me. And, but, you know, it was super cool. I think it was 2006 at the time. And if I remember correctly, when I went to work there, we had just closed or, yeah, we had, or we were in, in the process of raising our fund three. And so the total AUM at that time was, um, you know, around 500, 600 million, right? And, um, and it was a lean team, it was very small. And, but, but the, the thing that was very clear was that Greenspring had access to the elite, you know, upper quartile venture brands that nobody could get access to, especially not fund of funds, you know? And so that was really, you know, what kind of the spark for the business was the access, you know, that they had early on. And, um, you know, it, 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 it was just effectively a wildfire because there was so much demand for, you know, access to, to those brands that, you know, we went on there like what, four or five years. I think while I was there, we raised, you know, $3 billion in four or five years, you know, coming off of 500 at the time. And then, you know, today it's like 13 billion. It's just gone, you know, crazy and all sorts of different strategies. There's now sort of, you know, growth. There was always a late stage direct investment. I'll come back to that and talk a little bit about the technology there. But, um, you know, it was super cool, man. I mean, it's still one of those things I'm extremely proud to have worked there. Um, you know, it, it, it was the place that I think got my brain thinking in certain ways. And then also the place that, you know, kind of led me to, to like thoughts in my brain colliding that created, you know, kind of why I'm sitting here and what I like to do today and all that sort of stuff. So super cool to, to have been there at that time. Super proud of. I love it. You, you, you were there for a long opportunity to work there. Well, this is so like, it's been 10 years now. I'm just turned 40. And like, I think it was, uh, I say, close to five years. So I think it was just a little, like somewhere between four and five years. Got it. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. And a question before, uh, there's a lot, you know, having nerdy conversations about venture that, you know, we, we talked about that there aren't that many people, uh, that, uh, that have the interest and the knowledge. I think sometimes you have one or the other, <laughs> then, um, yeah. but when you were at the bar, um, and as a bartender, do you eavesdrop on like what people are talking? And if it's interesting to you, do you engage in into some sort of extra thing? Like, because <laughs> um, you know, we all have the have moments like that in life. They don't have to be serving them drinks, uh, but there's something in, maybe in an elevator or a line, or you know, was it was it like that for you? And then um, I always appreciate when you know you take risk and and you get rewarded for it. Totally. Well, there, I, as far as I'm concerned, there's two types of people in the world, like people that eavesdrop and say they do and then people that eavesdrop and say they don't you know <laughs> um so i i'm happy to say i i'm one of those people that uh fesses up to it so yeah you do do that i mean um i don't know you know i don't think you're you're asking whether i was is uh eavesdropping on jim's conversation but i i do recall being no, like no you know what i'm talking Whoa. about it's more kind of like no no on everybody you know oh, it's yeah, like yeah, i'm not no, sure. no no and by no means it's just, no there's no there are no traps here it's 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 more kind of like just you're at you're at this you're for instance today's you know coinbase's ipo and you're walking out and you're in a line yeah. someone talks about it and you're like you make a comment out of it it's just a 
Hmm. Yeah. Uh, us as monkeys. Totally. Well, you, you know, look kind of like. <laughs> I think you you have to. Yeah. Honestly, as a bartender, you know, I mean, it's like people might you might make somebody a drink and have them be like, God, there's shit drink. You know, I mean, that's something that like you know you maybe you don't address. But so anyway, you you do right, and and I, I'm I have no shame in saying I do. Um, but totally, and and there's some interesting things, and then there are times when you're just like I'm, you know. I just want to go home, man. You know, I'm not trying to like listen to this sob story or, you know, whatever it is. Um, and so there's a lot of times when you're sort of also a little vulnerable as a bartender, right? You're just sort of like right there in someone's face and you're, you know, kind of trying not to talk to them, but they're like the only person sitting there. And, but I'll tell you, it's an amazing place to have conversations. I'm sure you've been on, you know, um, that side of it. And I think, you know, as a bartender, you like, you're actually like having conversations with all these people coming and going and just in one night, you know? Yeah. Uh, and so I always really enjoyed that. That was cool. Nice. Yeah. Well, and then just uh, so we can, uh, so the audience can understand the the level of access that we're talking about. Um, what What's the story behind the firm and what are some of the, I mean, the portfolio is very impressive in terms of some of the, the firms that probably today are, They've reached the top of the mountain for a venture firm, which is the PERMA oversubscription land. Um, totally. And it seems like Greenspring managed to carve itself out in many of those. So uh, yeah. what do you think made that possible? Yeah, well, it, so uh, first off, I think Greenspring has always had incredible vision, you know, and um, going back to its founding. So, you know, uh, Ashton Newhall, is um the the founder co-founder with uh a partner from europe that has, has since kind of exited the business but but ashton um you know started well at, at the time it was actually called montague newhall associates and then you know when when uh, his partner left the business then, then we changed the name to greenspring and i was there during that time so ashton um incredible vision at a very young age, I think, saw an amazing opportunity, you know, which was at that time, there were fund of funds and, and actually fund of funds were sort of, you know, like a little frowned upon actually. And um, by on both sides, by, LP, by the LPs, LPs didn't right? like the, or by... yeah, the, the sort of two, you know, double layers of fees, but by GPs too, I think a little bit, you know, it was sort of like, uh, you know, we just don't know, you know, like how, how committed we are. And I think that there was, you know, all sorts of dynamics that, that probably I didn't even appreciate at that time. But the thing that didn't exist was like access to boutique venture capital only. So you had fund of funds that, you know, you could come to and get, you know, access to venture and, you know, private, private equity buyout, you know, and, and, you know, private equity real estate. But it was very difficult to to get access only through a fund of funds to early stage venture capital in the U.S. Right, and so that was really, I think, you know, kind of the the, the beginning of the genesis, or the genesis itself. And and so Ashton grew up. Um, Ashton's dad was uh, Chuck Newhall, is one of the founders of uh, NEA, and so. 
grew up around venture capital and you know i i think oh that's why it's certainly in had it makes sense now that was another i was like what totally. what's the deal yeah. with virginia yeah. and you know very few people know that nea started in virginia right yeah yes you are well learned in venture for that um i'm a venture nerd yeah and actually <laughs> nea still has an office in baltimore that's and right. um you know and it there aren't you know too many people there but yeah so you know i think ash just got it about venture and and he grew up around it and um i think that you know the relationships that he developed um in in growing up around that i think were you know tremendously important and and i think that there was some element of you know he was i think 26 when he started uh greenspring and i think that when he you know first sort of started talking to to lps about it and he was saying like like if you want access to to early stage you know, U.S. venture, I've got it for you. I think there was a little bit of like, good luck with that. Yeah, I'm sure you do. And, you know, um, I think that, you know, enough credit cannot be given to him for, you know, kind of going and getting it and coming back to him and saying like, you know, what do you want to talk about now? And and so then it was, you know, sort of off and running. And, and um, yeah, you know, you're talking about like, um, when I first went to work there in 2006, the commitment, I think that we had just made was to excel partners nine which you know there's sort of a hot topic of like what what are the greatest venture funds ever it's the facebook like, series a fund yeah facebook ad mob um i mean it's just like a, I, I co-invested a few times with kevin efruzzi uh, you know, he's yeah. the guy that, uh, I mean, many people say saved Excel because they weren't having the best, like the greatest performances, right? And then suddenly they sourced like a deal like, and it, it changes the entire trajectory of the, of the organization. And, uh, mm-hmm. it's, uh, and he's an amazing, amazing guy, you know, just so insightful. Uh, I also shared a board with him. Um, and uh, I learned tremendously from, from 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 that guy, and he did he did Facebook and, and Groupon, that you know whoever invested early made money. Uh, and, uh, yeah, totally. It's uh, yeah, I mean, so you know the 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 list of of you know managers they had access to was just incredible, and you know while I was there, um, you know the uh, we got into you know the the sort of few that we didn't have. That were on the sort of you know wish list were were all pretty much knocked out during that time and and since then the you know the 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 story has has just grown and it continues to amaze me. I mean this again the sort of vision is is pretty incredible and, and frankly something that I think at the time as you know a sort of junior investment guy you just don't appreciate you know um, and no, now in hindsight I mean especially you know with you asking the question I think there was just incredible vision and, and it was always sort of a step ahead it was you know uh the separate account business is you know big business um bringing in big you know um foreign lps to to kind of get them access to to certain things and then kind of make your way into introducing them to go direct i mean it, it there's growth funds there are um they're they're now my I, my understanding is that they're now raising their second kind of ESG and impact focused funds. I think they were you know a little bit ahead on that, and um, yeah, it's incredible, man. I mean, it, you know, it's just a really cool um, cool way to have seen venture because you know the thing that was really cool was we were primarily early stage GP focused, like we wanted you know the sort of top tier of early stage US venture, 
And then really kind of what, what I think there was a big story in was that we are going to use technology to um, identify like the sort of later stage um, candidates in these portfolios that we are going to you know, proactively offer to, to make direct investments in. And so that strategy was very effective. It was also the sort of light bulb for me that, you know, where there were opportunities in the market for technology to, you know, not only play a role, but to also sort of create, you know, kind of dif differentiation for managers. So got to, you know, make a whole bunch of, of late stage uh, investments alongside a lot of those people, a lot with OpenView, for example. I love OpenView. Um, and so I, I, we, we were <laughs> looking at the uh, co-invested with them at a company called Pipeify. The CEO of Pipeify mm -hmm. LSU is an animal, is a great, inevitable founder, phenomenal, one of the best people I've ever worked with. It's my very first uh, also venture investment. So it's dear to my nice. heart. And uh, unfortunately, it's, 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 it's on a great path. Uh, and uh, the, the work ethics of that firm and the fact that they are so good at what they do and are based in Boston so is, uh, yeah. um, there's one thing that OpenView does that I'm, that I'm so impressed. Um, it's the, 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 I operate as an investor at, at a very tactical, tactical level. This was something mm -hmm. that, you know, Adi and from Felicis inspired me. And I told him I was uh, going to steal that uh, line from him. So give him proper credit so he knows I continue yeah, yeah. to and you have you know, yes but it's a limited amount of favors but only one at a time but then you keep a scoreboard of everything you've done for that company and then it comes time for the next round you want to do super pro rata you don't need to have signed documentation for that because ultimately you've had enough judgment to just partner with the right people that will reward you for your hard work so much in our yeah. business happens through trust, right? And I think that uh, over time, I continue to see this founder talk so well about OpenView's work. And he's, uh, yeah. uh, you know, and, and the decks that they put you, it's, just, it's incredible. It is one of the best, you know, um, if, I, uh, uh, if I had enough, uh, I, I would be an LP there, happy, happy LP there. Yeah. No, well, it's like one of those firms that, you know, the brand is, you know, obviously tremendous, but they're not like flashy. No. They just do their thing. And they were very early on in doing their thing. I I'll tell you a funny story. Um, a couple of years back, um, one of our uh, marketing folks was like, hey, I've got this like uh, media piece that I want you to write. Or, or are you interested in writing it? And I was like, well, what's the topic? And the topic was like, um, sort of what is what has happened to um you know the ipo like what, what's going on with the ipo in venture capital or something like that right and i was told at the time i was like well who's it for and, and she was like oh, it was for business insider and i was like okay cool that's awesome we'll write this thing and so i write this you know this piece on it and then we you know it comes back from the editor and i didn't really see any of this but like you know, she was like, Hey, the editor loved it. Like literally changed like three things. Don't even need to tell you about it. I'm like, sweet. And so then like the, she's like, it's going live this day. And so on that day, she's like, Oh, it's so weird. I thought this was business insider. And she's like, it was open view venture partners. And I was like, oh, what? It's still like one of my proudest accomplishments. So they took it 
It's on their blog. And um, the short and sweet is that I made the case that uh, the IPO, and this is how you can find it, the IPO. Oh, we read it. Was shrinking. Yes. Oh, yeah, we prepared. We do our homework. Yes. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. It's just that I got excited. No, no, that I was you were just, quoting that what was is actually in. Better. Yeah, you, you've put the words in my mouth. So, yeah, the IPO is effectively a dinosaur. It hasn't gone away entirely. It's just kind of evolved into something different. And uh, I, I, it was still like one of the proudest things ever that OpenView put that on their blog. So, it, like, I, if you looked at their Google Analytics, I bet I'd make up like. 75% of the visits to that page. <laughs> that's amazing. Too. That's great. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's awesome. Coming back to the, to the green spring, um, uh, life. Yeah. I, um, I think his name is David. I forgot his last name, but the founder of a uh, top tier capital. Mm -hmm. And I, yeah. uh, yeah. the, uh, let me see if I can. If you hadn't asked me, I could have told you. Uh, David York, exactly. Yeah. And then, uh, so I lobbied with him uh, alongside the NVCA in DC. It was one of my favorite uh, trips. And it's just so interesting. I, I was the most junior investor there. And then uh, uh, it's it's surprising to me to see, you know, Greenspring top tier and some of the other um, fund of funds that, uh, you know, it, it all seemed very possible at that time, but today, uh, would that still make sense, right? I, um, one day, I plan on being successful enough to run an organized fund of funds. And I know already there are a few people doing that. They're trying to apply the Y Combinator concept for uh, emerging managers. Um, I just think that that presents it's like that represents a massive and massive opportunity. Uh, Angel List has some stuff there, and um, it's very interesting to see where we are today versus where we were uh, back then. Uh, so I don't know if you have any thoughts about uh, if you yeah. were to start like a fund of funds today, how uh, how would you do it? Yeah, that's actually an amazing question because I don't think that I have necessarily explicitly thought it. And so you're going to get something kind of a little raw here. Um, I think that, so I, I think that like Greenspring arguably survived through what, you know, was probably actually a very difficult time for fund of funds. And I, I don't think it was clear as clear at the time it is now you know, what, what we were doing to, to, you know, evolve in real time. And, you know, all of those, there were many things, right. And those are less important. I think that the, the, uh, point or the outcome of them was, was in most all cases the same, which was be a valuable partner. And so I think that like, that's a pretty generic thing to just say, you know, and I think even at that time we were, um, to your point earlier about like sort of, you know, measuring and keeping track at least of sort of things that have happened and maybe outcomes that were tied to them. And, and so that was what we were doing. We were saying like being very clear to GPs about like, here's what, you know, we offer or here's what our relationship up to this point has done. And, and that's why we think that, you know, we should get a bigger bite size out of this fund. And so, you know, I think that remains strong for me uh, 10 years later is, 
you know, being a good partner, but like, what does that mean? Right. I mean, it's pretty generic in the absence of, of being able to say it. And so I guess now with the viewpoint that I, that I have, um, I think that there's, and this is just sort of a, you know, catch all answer really in this market, because at this point, like, you know, working in, on the technology side of it and looking for opportunities, um, it's, you know, it, it's bound to be something with technology. And, and I'm really obsessed with this idea of um, what has been called, and I didn't coin it this, but, and I, I think it's a little awkward for some people, I happen to like it. So, which is like Tinder for alternative assets, right? In the context of like making matches with people who want to, you know, find each other, but which, you know, right now don't have an easy way, right? And so introducing LPs to GPs, introducing, you know, sort of whatever. And so, you know, I think that there's like, if I were to go start a fund of funds right now, and you're catching me, sort of, you know, answering off the cuff, I think it would be the combination of two things, like really focused on like a value add relationship with proof. And that probably it would take the form of like technology driven ways to, um, kind of keep keep the GP happy. Like here are LPs, like let us sort of use technology to to not only kind of facilitate these things, but also to um, kind of come back to them and look at them in the scoreboard and say like, hey, this is like what we did for you. Remember all that, you know, great, all those great things. So um, I think the same is true on the flip side, right? Of like, what which investments are you making? We were always very data-driven and Greenspring remains it you know, and much more so today. But like, you know, I'm, I'm convinced that we're headed for a world where, you know, algos are making most of the investment decisions in the under not like, not, that's going to sound ridiculous to some people. What I mean is that the edge to find new managers, the yeah, underlying assets, that, that I agree, you know, whatever. I agree. It's, it's like, basically high quality um high fidelity top of the funnel qualification that where you are but then you gotta get a human but the top of the funnel can totally be totally. identified and, and automated and for your second point i think you're spot on on what will be created as a next generation product and um i i caught up with him a week and a half ago and we're doing a deeper catch-up uh soon and i really really respect him and like that guy uh samir kanji you know that was at uh first report he started this company called allocate which it sounds like something like that. And for me, someone that, you know, I've, I've raised money from extremely organized institutional investors. I've also raised money from people that were just uh, very successful entrepreneurs. They're just rich. They've never invested in the asset class. And I will, you know, had the privilege yeah. of them trusting their capital with me for the first time when they were doing venture. And um, certainly the first profile in many ways is better, but there is, there should be a systematic product just like how you open up, you know, your your app, whatever app today, and you can buy a stock or you can buy crypto. Mm -hmm. You should be able to become an LP, whatever you want, and someone qualifying that for you. I, uh, you know, I, I, I did not uh, grow up with with. I was I didn't grow up poor, but I did not grow up with a lot of money in mm -hmm. in in Brazil. And I see some of the investment decisions that my parents make sometimes, and I uh, I get very frustrated. <laughs> So uh, now I've been helping them a little, a little more actively, but the democratization of the asset class with 
the automated discovery mechanism, I think it's basically the, the, super, the super product, uh, in conjunction with a community that helps all the investors that are starting firms or scaling firms continue to be good people. Because, uh, you know, what made me believe that I could be a successful VC was when I was at uh, working at FCVC, a funders club, and, you know, and I saw that the top 10 firms continue to be the same top 10 firms, top 15 firms, because they hire uh, maniacs that are healthy workaholics that are obsessed about the craft. And, and they're not just there for the money, they're there for the game. And that's the motivation. But then the minute that you continue to like drop off that echelon, the work ethics, they do change. You start having uh, way more ego and just people that are connected with the business in a different way, which continues, mm -hmm. in my opinion, to make it very possible for a bunch of different managers to like rise and shine. Um, mm -hmm. Totally. Love that. Well, and mm -hmm. like, you know, so for, you know, um, recent history for us, right? I mean, we, you know, we have a presence in, you know, enabling sort of external, you know, we call it a lot of things, but at a simple level, like uh, enabling external engagement, right? So we're, we're sort of saying, okay, well, we get it. like you need the things that are sort of keeping track of what you're doing internally to find, you know, new opportunities and find LPs and all those sorts of things. But really like the sooner uh, you can get to, you know, actually creating some real estate outside of your organization that is technology driven. Now I've used the analogy of like, uh, you know, the, the LPGP relationship, I think there's going to be a part of the market where to, to your point, like you open an app on, on your phone and you know, you, you, you get there, but like for the big sort of institutional relationships, like I've used the analogy that it's a little bit like a marriage, right? I mean, you don't sort of get married on Tinder. You're really there to like sort of, you know, put in your things and then have it match other people, or at least kind of estimate who, who you match with, and then you kind of have some choice and then you go on dates. Right. And so I, you know, I think that there's a part of the market that that's super interesting in, in terms of let, like, if, if I'm setting up like a data room and I'm a GP, like, don't you just, it's like the, it's so limiting, you know, uh, psychologically to think like, okay, well, like, we're going to have to go find these people to invite to it. When the reality is like, there's probably a whole bunch of people out there that would love to see it. And, and seriously, like they would actually take a, a good look at it. And, and that's, what's interesting to me is like, how do you, um, start to get people who would like, you wouldn't have to do, you know, all the work. Like if, if you've already got it all posted up and set up and they want to take a look at it, like let them sort of swipe right or swipe left type thing, you know? Um, yeah. and then, uh, you know, there's some sort of meetings and some dating and whatever, like, and, and then you get married. But, um, but the role of technology and, and it, I mean, like, as we sit here right now, like none of these things are really happening at all. Think, and so that's the point is like, come on, it's not going to stay this way. You know, that's it's going right. to change for sure. I, I do think that the proxy of that today is the ability of being creative and insightful with content through social media. It's this generalized sure. thesis that, you know, influencers are becoming investors and investors want to become influencers. It's a, And mm. it's a wide spectrum. You can have... Sequoia and Benchmark partners trying to out-meme each other on Twitter, all yeah. the way to people doing, uh, frankly, doing what you know we're doing here, 
which is a, is a different approach, but you're, you know, to try to build credibility and notoriety, notoriety in, a, in, a, in a different way. Uh, so that discoverability gets a little bit easier. Uh, sure. But I think that the, the question here is, you know, you don't want to be in a situation where, let's say Cambridge Associates, for instance, right? I've you know, met with them a few times, think they're great, do, you know, been in the business for so many decades and so forth. But it's yeah. a very conservative way of like trying to figure out who is next or who's coming, you know, up and running. And it has wonderful product market fit for them and it works really well. I want to be in a position where, because, you know, I love learning and, things are happening so fast that in a situation, you know, let's say five years from now, and I'm in a position where, you know, Atman has a fund of funds. I love to have a fund of funds only for, you know, 19 year old kids and give yeah. them money and we, you know, and let them invest because we think they're brilliant. They're very motivated. Um, in how do you find them? Right. Yeah. Where do you get the original data source, right? Because I, I I remember, for instance, uh, when when um, at one VC uh, we did a bunch of uh, growth, and we continue to do this at Atman as well. Just a bunch of uh, late stage SPVs as well um, mm -hmm. as a marketing instrument to actually raise more capital versus just being that manager that says, "Oh, trust me, give me money." It's like, no, I have an exclusive opportunity that very few people have access, and I have a fund. Would you like to talk, right? So. Yeah. Start getting inbound from a bunch of large hedge funds. This was, I think, before the whole, I mean, the, the trend was happening, but it wasn't as evident as it is today with, you know, Kuchu, D1, Tiger, and so forth, kind of like investing yeah. everywhere. And I was like, he, the guy was like, basically, if you have access and you're structuring a very large SPV, almost like what Industry Ventures does as well, right? They're like, I'm happy to fund the whole thing. I manage billions and, you know, frankly, the returns in the public markets aren't the same as they used to be. So um, I, I got to find, I got to put money to work. And I was, how did you figure out that I existed? I asked him that question, but you know, to your point. Uh, I love that question just in the, in the abstract, right? With no context. Yeah. yeah I was like, where the fuck did you find me, man? And then, um, and funny enough, our offices in San Francisco were across the street from each other. I kid you not. No way. Wow. <laughs> it's that sort of stuff, man, right? Like, come on. And so, like, the things that technology are doing at scale for the world right now, and that's not in it, you know, that that's the thing that for me continues to be like, there's a huge problem to be solved there, and it's it's going to be solved, right? I mean, we're, you know, in many ways working on solving that. Um, yeah. And, well, uh, exactly. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And th the answer to this question was that, you know, he leveraged the pitch book API, trying to find the entity names that would say anything such as growth SPV or what. And then he just combined with a bunch of different oh. tag words and so forth. And then he had a list and just, you know, pinged a bunch of people assuming that, Oh, yeah, these, part, these guys are probably seed investors that are very hungry and they're good because they managed to get access. Like you know, when we were doing some of these SPVs, we were sure. taking allocation from Andreessen and Tiger. Uh, so um, anyway, but then. Cool. Yeah, no, I love that. Uh, uh, you, you were there for five years and it was a transition uh, to, you know, the role at Appia. And also, I, I, um, I would love for you to just tell us more a little bit about what you guys do because um, 
I, uh, I, I was fascinated. It was, I've never heard of the product before until we were researching. Um, and full disclosure, you know, we, we, I think you guys were great in the first, first phone call, uh, by explaining the, the, the price tag that for smaller firms, it's harder to afford. So today we run an affinity with the hopes of, you know, eventually having another conversation and checking the product out. Yeah. Uh, also because if they have someone like you there for a decade plus, I'm very interested <laughs> in, in, in learning what you guys are building. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, yeah. So, you know, so the way that, that we kind of phrase it and, you know, it's definitely a case of like, you know, it's been a big vision for some, some time. And in many cases along the way, it was like, how do we tell people that, you know, my mom thinks we fix printers or something. We work with computers. And so the, the best, the best way to describe it is I think like we want to truly kind of transform the way the technology is sort of, the role that it's playing in this market and and across the board like with lps with gps with intermediaries and and then with portfolio companies and, and underlying assets and and what the opportunity we see is is you know that that sort of you know this market not just venture um but you know buyout and and other sort of you know segments of kind of alternative assets are disproportionately responsible for all sorts of you know kind of innovation certainly but but as well you know the returns that we all are sort of you know beneficiaries are so there's so, one i'll you give know, you even an nvc yeah. talking point two-thirds of americans that have health care actually have it through a company that raised venture capital in its history yeah totally i, I love those because uh when we would write you know thought pieces of greenspring the they're punchy i mean like the all those statistics you're like holy shit can that be like is that a typo and no that's actually the point um so thank you for that but yeah i mean you know so so we we see an opportunity for that to be even more efficient right and so whether it's like you know uh applications and and you know software that is helping you be more efficient internally or whether it's you know software that is helping you like we're, we're talking about here like actually you know uh open up and enable opportunities that you otherwise wouldn't have with with the people somewhere in that ecosystem, right? Whether it's, you know, a capital source or whether it's finding an asset, you know, that that's that's really what we're doing. And so it takes the form of, you know, kind of traditional categorical, you know, things like CRM and portal and, you know, stuff like that. Um, but, but we're really focused on, you know, a big vision of kind of just changing how technology works. So in many ways, you know, the conversation we've just been having um and so the 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 path uh that took me here was so it you know goes back to about 2008 or so i was still at Greenspring, and um really early on in in my time there when i first went to work there they were like they were using salesforce.com and um they'd worked with a consultant prior to me going to work there and they were like you're like the you know newest most junior guy like here like figure this out and i was like you know what i have no idea what i'm doing so um i ended up kind of managing this thing and then uh it was very clear to me very early on that like this thing was powerful in 2008 salesforce.com there were a lot of people you know uh inventor and gps that that were using it but it was like it just was kind of like not really you know getting there and so i was introduced to obvious founder uh kevin kelly who had um just prior to this been spending you know uh 
time at RCP Advisors, the lower middle market buyout fund of funds in Chicago. And so he was sort of playing like a, an outsourced CTO role there and and much more explicit in like, you know, choosing systems for them and stuff like that. And he ended up with Salesforce very quickly said, hey, like, there's a much bigger opportunity here. And so the opportunity was to actually sort of take the power of Salesforce as a you know technology platform, but, you know, not have to go through that sort of consultant like, you know, model and instead go through an application layer that like was punchy and market driven that worked in this market. And so when I was introduced to him, I was like, ooh, this is, you know, this is what I've been looking for. And it's funny. Um, my, my definition yeah. of a Salesforce is that is, uh, it's basically, it's the ugliest, clunkiest product that you must buy as, a, oh. as, as, as an organization. And I think that the way that the whole thing was set up was because uh, Mark Benioff was probably mentally inspired by the sheer aggressiveness of a guy like Larry Ellison back yeah. when he was the number one guy on Oracle listening to his uh, Tony Robbins tapes and said, you know what, I got to get out of this and start my own thing. But I need to run my own kingdom that's going to be a dictatorship called Salesforce. And then I basically provide corporate lobotomy on every customer. And we all get together in this big church called Dreamforce every year. I bring Metallica and Deepak Chopra. So people think that, uh, and it's crazy. And you see, like at Sengri, the a few clashes that I've had in, internally were with the Salesforce administration people because they acted as if they were a dictatorship within the company. And the, the our installation at some point looked like an ugly Christmas tree. There were just so many things attached to each other and it was such a mess and you can't do anything as an individual contributor at the application level like you're talking about. You can do nothing. You don't have any freedom and you want to buy it and you got to buy it through the reseller and it was a revolutionary model and I respect that company immensely, right? There's no disrespect because it also, it takes a complete level of like determination to sell such a horrible product so well. And congratulations, you know, to them on that. I think that, you know, the app exchange and the Apex language and everything they've done, incredible organization. It's a very inspiring story, but the problem, the product, sorry, is a problematic product. And, totally. uh, you know, so, so just well, to validate it, your point, I, I have strong feelings about this. <laughs> no, listen, Hey, I mean, you're not the only one. I mean, it, like there's nobody that, that feels like, oh yeah, it's kind of, I mean, like if you, if you've never, you know, used Salesforce then you're sort of like, oh, I have no idea. But you know, if you have, you feel one way or the other and most people feel the way you do, you know, and, um, and, and I get it. And we actually, for the better part of, you know, several years, we're the beneficiary of that, right? Because we were sort of saying like, well, all right, like, and, and we literally, you know, every year bootstrap just had so many firms and the word of mouth thing was great. I mean, it was like, oh, that, like these are the people that figured it out. So that was how I first met the company was, was like, ah, this is what we need. And, um, and so I, you know, by that point in, I, I, I left there early in 2011. And by that point, I had started, you know, mostly working on, you know, kind of some of the later stage direct investments that we were doing at, at Greenspring. And um, like I said, co-invested in, in a couple of cases alongside OpenView. And um, like, you know, in a lot of those cases was a board observer. And so I was starting to become like, I was, and still remain today, absolutely 100% obsessed with 
you know, the entirety of venture capital. And, you know, the viewpoint that I had was really cool one, but I, I started to realize like the thing that I'm obsessed with is building companies. Right. And so this is a way to sort of, you know, have a purview into that. Um, but like, it also is like, man, like, you know, it'd be really fun to build a company. And, and so, uh, it was early in 2011 that I think all of the things sort of clicked. I wanted to get back to Colorado and, and here's a funny story, actually. Um, you know, it was, it was, uh, hard decisions for me. I felt like I was sort of leaving a dream career and, um, you know, but I, I really worried more about my girlfriend at the time, we, you know, and so we had to figure out how to both get back here. And so one day, like we hadn't even kind of put the wheels in motion, but one day I was on a, a reference call, uh, with a founder here in Boulder that, uh, had just started a company backed by foundry group. And so it was like foundry's 2009 or 2010 fund. I guess it was 2010, 2011. And um, we, I was on a call with them. I was and telling him about, oh, I know, you know, a little bit about what you guys do because my wife does this. Now he's like, well, who's your wife? Where she worked? Flew us out to Boulder, I think literally that weekend. It was like a Thursday. We were in Boulder that weekend. And by the time we left, you know, Sunday night, he was like, your wife's coming to work here. So that was actually the path uh, that kickstarted the whole thing. And And then it was just very clear that like, I, I felt so like your wife had... works at Altfia as well. No, no, no. Sorry, that was confusing. Uh, she went to work at the uh, company at the time, was in stealth mode, but be, uh, became LinkSmart and was backed by Foundry Group. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So um, I, she kind of you know one up me. I was worried about finding her something to do for work, and uh, all of a sudden I was like you know sort of scrambling. So um, we did kind of uh, the the long distance thing for like a couple of months at the end of the year. And it, it just started to kind of emerge and, and you know, if Kevin is listening or, or hears this someday, I mean, Kevin ultimately one day, you know, asked me the question like, would you want to come to work here? And I hadn't really given that much thought, but it it was almost in that moment, it became clear that um, like the, the problem that I had been suffering from, you know, at Greenspring, like in the absence of some of the technology and what I saw, some of the opportunity, the desire to kind of want to be a part of building a company and, and having it be in Colorado, it all just kind of clicked and, you know, it, there's times I joke, it's like, it feels like it's been, you know, 20 years and there's times when it feels like it's been, you know, 20 days, but that's just what we've been doing. We've just building, you know, products, get back to the Salesforce thing. In many cases, what we've done is, is said like Salesforce doesn't do that or doesn't do it well enough. So we're going to go build our own, you know, assets around uh, the periphery with the goal of just building a, a sort of full platform for the market that, you know, uh, solves problems internally, enables external engagement, makes LPs happy, all, you know, all those sorts of things. And that's what we've been doing. So that's awesome. Okay. So yeah. walk me through then, Jeff, like some of the things that you that Altvia does that your traditional CRM wouldn't do it because the whole um, I didn't get to I didn't get to see a demo. Uh, but Basically, the I think the like the, the clients that you guys have already validate right and speak you know like they, they, they give you guys tons of validation. If you name drop some of your your your, your customers as well, please feel free to do it. Um, and uh, by the way, the, none of this is a sponsored or paid. I this is a, <laughs> is a podcast for you know founders of venture investors that are nerds in that sense with with so, what we do. So I'm curious because I've been an affinity customer for probably like four and a half, five years or so. Sure. Um, I like it. Um, it makes my life easier. Um, I use Relate IQ before they were acquired by, yeah. <laughs> by Salesforce. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, and um, 
I think that uh, one of the things that uh, that apparently was a, was a big difference is that you guys have a big thing on managing the firm, and then as you start having a bunch of different vehicles, that is a very it's a very painful thing, and certainly a tool like Affinity can't do that. Um, yeah. So just you know, I'd love to learn more. Like, what's Altvia as a, we're not just a CRM. And what and how is it that that works at the tactical the tactical uh, level and you know some of the customers that if you can you know name them uh, that that have been using some of these features with with actual examples I think that that would be cool. Yeah, totally. So um, so so to start off, I'll, I'll kind of give you a sense for some of the folks that we're working with, and, and we're extremely proud of of our clients and our partners, and you know in many cases. Um, you know, they had this sort of faith and trust in us as a you know very young company at the time, and and we're tremendously grateful for that. Um, but you know, there's it, it, a bunch of folks, obviously, in the sort of you know green spring community, um, NEA, TCV, um, you know, Lightspeed. There's a whole bunch of customers that I also can't, you know, uh, or or not supposed to name. Uh, I I think people think that there's sort of some secret sauce going on, and and you know, frankly, there is. But Kosla um you know and now you put me on the spot i'm like oh what are the other ones but like you know on the on the buyout side there's um you know uh, like little john uh Wimpoint partners and you can always go to allvia.com and see many of these logos I, there's a buyout firm called little john yes I and love they're it. amazing. Yeah, they are the <laughs> no sorry guys. sorry i i, I know no. very little about that market but i just i think it's the uh, totally. It's a great, it's a, what an interesting name. Yeah, right. Like <laughs> For buyouts. You know, they, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Little John and co. Um, and yeah, tremendously good at what they do. And it, and I was, you know, same. I, I've gotten to know a lot of these, you know, buyout firms now working with them, but uh, sort of had no idea. And, you know, we, we think like, put, you know, we'll put up our, or put our client roster against any, any of our sort of peers and, uh, and we'll take it. So, you know, I think that like what we're doing um, beyond And, and CRM, also, I, so, yeah. sorry to cut you off. This, I wouldn't no, consider even Affinity a, a peer just because of the size of the contract, right? The tool sure, sure. Is, is, it's a whole nother level. That's why in the beginning of our conversation, I named you guys the Rolls Royce of uh, venture infrastructure. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe, you know, they are, uh, we're, and with them, maybe we're buying a BMW Series Three, and they're working very hard, you know, to build a Ferrari. So these are it's different, sure. different, different categories. Just to, totally. sorry, to, to, yeah, to, no, and look, you know, um, I've never been one, you know, to sort of you know knock competition. I respect them all. I think everybody at the end of the day actually is you know a little bit different, and and um, there's some salesmanship and all that stuff. But yeah, no, I mean, there's a an important you know role. I think that the affinity plays and we you know in many cases compete with them but uh I, i'll tell you I, you know there are, are people that i myself have said like i you know actually think affinity might be a better fit to to the implied point that like maybe they're not quite ready for, for some of the stuff we're doing but you know i think that what um it, you know crm is important right like we actually have a podcast episode on this and and uh i think it's laid out there not by me but by somebody else uh really well which is like you know categorically you know all businesses are especially B2B ones have more or less the same functions. CRM is a part of it, right? Like finance is, is a thing like, you know, ERP, HR, you know, um, type stuff, payroll. 
And some of these things are like super important from the perspective of like, you cannot mess them up. Like you cannot like mess up your finance system, right? But it's not like a strategic weapon. And if you look across these sort of technology stacks, oftentimes CRM is sort of more of where the proprietary stuff's happening. How are your reps, you know, reaching out and engaging, you know, prospects and things like that. And so the CRM components for us, you know, are, are pretty straightforward. We're gonna handle like raising capital, you know, the whole sort of, uh, solicitation process, if you will, sounds like a, you know, almost like a dirty word in this case, um, but raising a fund, uh, deploying it and keeping track of investment opportunities and all those things where we're really, really different is, um, you know, I think you, you sort of mentioned it, Pedro, it's like this, we think about it, a, a firm life cycle. And, and we think about it as like, when you raise funds, it's to invest them. And then, you know, you invest them so you can, you know, report on them. And then you report on them and also then need all of the information that was generated, all of the exhaust in terms of data that was just generated is all going to come right back to the starting point again, because now you're going to need to tell all the LPs the next time you raise capital about the thesis, how you delivered on it, what you're good at, what you're not, how the, the assets are performing. So a big part of my experience at GreenSpring was like, this is a circular process and, you know, the data that is in it at any point is sort of the same data. It's just kind of cycling through, you know, uh, different motions in, in different stages. And so the way we've looked at it is like, we aren't gonna, we wanna be the best at everything we, we can do. I was just telling, you know, coworker the other day, like that, uh, you know, I occasionally worry about like the desire to be like the absolute best. Like sometimes I'm like, is, like I know this is like the thing a lot of people do, but maybe it's excessive for me. Um, we want to be the absolute best, something we're going to do, or we're not going to do it. And, and so we don't really do like, uh, we don't certainly do, don't do like HR. We don't do finance, but what, where we're really differentiated is we, we're sort of creating and this, this, I think I've been laughed at before I'll risk it again. I've almost compared it to like, we want to create the rotating sushi bar that is delivering data throughout the firm mm -hmm. to the people that need it, mm -hmm. you know? And so like. There may be a need for, well, and there is, there's definitely a need for accounting data to be on that, you know, sort of uh, conveyor belt, but it, we don't have to be the application that's generating. And so what a big part of what's unique about what we're doing is, is being able to access and put together that full picture of the data that somebody needs. So it's like, hey, well, like I'm an IR person and all I'm getting questions about, you know, the performance. Well, you know, traditionally a lot of firms even still today are like, Oh, we have a team of analysts that will take three weeks and they can tell you anything, right? And the the future we envision is like, all you need to do is reach out and take that piece of sushi off and eat it. Like, and if the next person needs it, like there'll be one right behind that. And so it's really about organizing the data so that it's free flowing and available to the people that need it, including, you know, I guess the analogy breaks down at this point, but including to the point that you actually want to begin to enable an NLP experience that involves some of that data as well. So they, you're not going to sort of send the whole conveyor belt to them. But if you wanted to say, hey, like, well, let's let them access their account data or let's let them see visually in an interactive experience where the portfolio has been invested and how it's doing, then, you know, that once you've organized your own data such that anybody can access it, it's actually pretty straightforward based on all of the information you would have in there to actually very quickly enable like your LPs in a certain fund to see a, a dashboard that, that does that does that so that's a big part of sort of you know how we're organizing the data that we're generating in our applications as well as the data that we're not 
And then the other thing that, that kind of really differentiates us is that we have, you know, in this sort of portal kind of data room um, segment, we, we basically sort of took the approach of like, throw it all away, it's all bad. Yeah, I, I, I feel I spent years suffering and being tortured in portals as an LP. And so we built a product uh, several years ago that we said like, what if we just totally like actually reimagined it, you know? And we just said like, let's total, let's just imagine what it would look like for an LP to use this application and be amazed at how easy it was and how elegant it was. And let's just bet on that we'll get LPs talking to GPs about it and GPs will be like, well, I, you know, I have to have this thing. And so that's a big part of, of, of you know, kind of where we, um, are strong is, is the enablement of the LP experience. And it turns out that that sort of conveyor belt of, of data feeds that experience directly to the LPs and part of big part of why they love it. So this That's is a little right. bit yeah. meandering, but yeah. No, no, but I think that, you know, oftentimes emerging managers and I, I will be an emerging manager until I die, uh, just because, you know, so I, I like the, take the Jeff Bezos day one, uh, philosophy, but there's something to be said when, um, you know, when I left uh, one VC, at that time I had done probably already like maybe 60 plus investments in venture between my time as an associate, all the deals that I that I led at the firm, plus the up rounds. And, um, and some were through a, a, what you would consider a core fund and many of the others were through SPVs. Uh, I've done many, many SPVs uh, during my venture career um, in in all the places that I either started or, or worked at. Uh, and since I've left as well, I've done a few already. So it's a very helpful mechanism in many ways. And the issue though is managing all of it. So it, it was very messy. So I've used uh, uh, Assure, I've used AngelList. I ran SPVs on Funders Club when I was uh, working there as a client of Cornerstone Fund Services. I've used Carta, uh, so let's try them all. And uh, we decided to leave Cornerstone and go to Carta because of the portal. That was the only mm -hmm. decision. The folks at Cornerstone yeah. are great. They're awesome people, very responsive. They're great. It's just not, you know, just not software people. Not a, it's not a tech company. It's a fund management. Uh, Service-driven. Yeah. Service, yeah. Uh, so the combination of both are, I think, just really important. And uh, the complexity of having multiple vehicles during the life cycle of the firm, which then I understand why your contract size, you know, the price for, for Alto is higher because at that point, you know, uh, when, you, when you have that level of complexity, you probably can afford the, the the price as well so that's that isn't even a well, problem. And the pain right? you know get gets more severe yeah so yeah so so uh but what do you think it's next then in terms of uh the 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 the, the because it is getting a little more competitive and totally. i i i think that uh you know you got a bunch of the uh old, old players trying to do tech and frankly, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I just ran an SPV on Assure and the amount of bugs I found there, I'm happy to say this on the record, you know, the, they're great at service, uh, but they're going through a very painful process of scaling right now. Yeah. Uh, they're great yeah. people, but they are in pain. And frankly, the quality of the software there, it, it kind of gets the job done, but it's not beautiful. 
Uh, yeah. So, and then you see other new players just doing that type of stuff, almost at the API level. And AngelList as well, I think, has matured tremendously. So, it's uh, it's interesting. I think that we're we're getting into a point where so much technology is finally being applied to the asset class. Yeah, exactly. And you know, I think that that's um, historically there. Here's my thesis. So, historically, the sort of um, like if you were to do benchmark analysis, take Cambridge, you know, benchmarks, and you said like, you know, what's the disparity between like upper quartile performance and lower quartile or median? Then the disparity, like in the early days of older vintages, in the early days of my time at Greenspring, for older vintages at that time, it was like, oh my god, like you cannot you know, you have to be in the upper quartile, right? And you were just completely running away. And there's been a lot of compression in that, you know, now. And so the, you know, it's a number of things. I mean, you're still, brands are still relevant. Strategies are still very relevant. Track records are still very relevant. But you do now have, a, I think, much more uh, creativity in terms of how people are approaching being differentiated. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that Silicon Valley Bank banks to the wine industry and to venture capital, because I think that like they're the equivalent in terms of kind of doing, you know, mostly the same thing. Like, what's the story? Because you, you don't know what the returns will be in the front, right? You can never invest to the front mirror or to the front windshield. You invest at the back. And um, and so, you know, there's there has to be compelling stories and certainly being in the top quartile consistently is very compelling. But when the compression happens in the those returns and you don't know what the fund will be, then the story becomes more relevant. And so what you started to see is firms that that are actually like paying more attention to um, a differentiation story that isn't just about, you know, performance and. Um, I think we, we're now living through a period where those stories are kind of getting a little bit tired to the extent that they don't use technology somehow, right? So let me give you an example. Like you're talking to, to somebody from Bain and um, he was, you know, he's largely agreeing. He's like, you, you know, you hear managers and you're sort of like, well, what makes you different? It's like, well, we've been investing together for 15 years. And it's like, that's not that different. So as everybody else, like I just had five people in here saying that. Well, you know, uh, we have access to like unique deal flow. Well, what is it? Well, it's proprietary. Okay, well, if you know, if you can't really tell me, it doesn't really seem like you do. And so that for, the, for a long time, the market got away with that, like as, as differentiated. It's not. It's just not. It's right. Not, no. And so, you know, like now, people are starting to use technology to actually differentiate uh, in terms of how they find things and how they make investments. But here's the real thing about how they provide customer service to their investors. And for me, that was always the thing, you know, obviously being on the LP side where it was like, yeah, man, I mean, it just kind of is weird that like, I, yeah, I could log into like my brokerage account or my 401k account. I can see like, you know, everything about the money that is in there. And it yet, like we've committed $50 million to this fund. And I like, I'm having a hard time getting a response to like, you know, get a quarterly report, you know? And so the competitive dynamics, we bet that they would always sort of start to head to a point where differentiation was better found in technology. And that's happening to your point now. And that's where all the companies are coming from to take advantage of. And there's so much consolidation now happening 
But the, the fundamental driver is that firms are actually buying the, buying more and more technology because it like broke like Schwab. Like I got a notice the other day and Schwab was like, oh, we're now integrated with like um, your Google home. So you can like, hey, Google, like what's, you know, my Schwab balance. It's like, no one wants to do that. But guess what? They want to, they have to differentiate and appear to the, you know, it's a B2C model mostly, right? So they have to appear to the consumer as though they're like keeping up with the thing. And and now you, you know, that's more and more important in B2B in, in this market is show your LPs that, that you're actually sort of providing uh, customer service and experience and that it's technology enabled because that's a compelling story. Sorry, you Absolutely. wanted to jump in a couple of times. And I just no, no, no. I get very problem. passionate about it. I love it because no, I yeah. think it, it's one of the most important aspects of um, the aesthetics of how you interact with your clients when you are in the money management and service business. And oftentimes, Many emerging managers forget that in the end, no one gives a shit about the glory stories or the unicorns. They just want to have you made me money. That's what matters yeah. at, in the end. Like you don't, but you can do that in a very nice, sympathetic, you know, unique way. But we are also managing capital for a living. So the ability of communicating the right way with credibility and providing a good level of service. I've always, uh, my former manager, a funders club and now, now you know he runs a company called CodeCov that I was an angel and then subsequently we invested it to, to one VC and uh, and he says like uh, I, I made a I made a mistake once and I sent like something with an, with an error to an investor and I got called out and he I remember vividly that moment he was like look people here when we're doing things they need to feel like we're changing the world and and also give them the credibility that you know their money is with um, with Goldman Sachs, like that's what I think. So he said something of that of of, of, of those lines. But uh, I don't know if like any of these investment banks have that much ethical credibility. But uh, uh, <laughs> yeah, every six months there's someone doing something you know weird. Yeah. But but overall, I think that there's there's a level of integrity, right? That you trust. That's like you know if your money is in Chase, like or or, or, or it's going to be there. And and then and, and some of these firms, they're really weird black holes. And a lot of the managers continue to be able to get away with that because they could, because there wasn't enough competition. And now, for me as a founder, because I, I am an investor, but of course, I, I consider myself an early, uh, like an early stage founder. Yeah, like you didn't come through that, like, you know, Harvard Business School path and all you've ever done is, yeah, make investments. Yeah, totally. And I love that type of investor, by the way. Well, thank you. Yes. Well, I, 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 we were talking about just to even go back to something we spoke earlier, right? When we were talking about the education, you know, I watched, I interviewed over 54 MBAs. I went to classes at uh, HBS, uh, Anderson School of Business, GSB, uh, the Sloan, um, Columbia, um, and so forth. And all the students that I spoke with there in Wharton, they, um, on my dime, traveled to all these places and watched classes and interviewed all these students to really crack as like, should I get an MBA? Because I had this chip on my shoulder that I didn't have the fancy education that all my peers had. And the first time, I did this twice. First time I did this, they were all saying, oh, I would love to work at a venture-backed company that one day goes public and gets acquired for billions. And, you know, then that I had that with SendGrid. And the second time is like, I'd love to get a job in venture. And I had that with the Funders Club. So I think that uh, I, I this is not true. You know, I've, I've, I've invested in amazing people that went to these institutions, but going to these schools has a no correlation 
with your ability to be a good person and be successful in life. Because I've invested, I, I have also fell for the 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 Disney story of an MBA that is a horrible founder. Uh, you know, and, uh, looks like a little beautiful Disney princess, and when it comes down, it's just like there's nothing there. It's just like fairy. It's a fairy tale. Um, sure. Yeah. So, so yeah, I don't totally. think it's yeah, it's it's correlated in any way. But uh, wanted to you know be respectful of your time because you've uh, been so generous already. Uh, this is and, fun, man. There's nothing I would yeah. rather do, if I'm honest. I appreciate that. I appreciate. It. I feel like we're gonna have a lot of fun. Uh, and I, uh, I, I really enjoy the, I, I hope that, you know, soon we'll be able to do it in person. Uh, there will be a time when things open up. I'm going to go to Colorado. So, uh, when that happens, uh, hey, look, we're going to Brazil together too. You agreed to that earlier. So that's happening. It's happening. We'll open back up. Yeah. I'll come see you in Miami. Yeah. We'll do all the things, all the places, but no, man, it, it, um, I knew the first time that, that we, we chatted that, uh, that we were going to uh, enjoy it very much. And, and indeed we did. And we uh, were sort of all over the place in a fascinating conversation that I love. And, uh, and we're going to get to do this again on, on my podcast. Um, but no, I mean, it's just so fun, man, you know, and, and um, I look forward to that. it, yeah, it's just such an exciting thing. And, and, you know, uh, the, the viewpoint, like when you asked me like, what's next, it's like that question is so fun and also so frustrating and tiring and all the things. And, and I guess that's what, that's a part of it that you sign up for, but um, you know, how will, how will these things, you know, sort of play out? And, you know, I guess at the end of the day, like you were saying something that, that the almost had this sort of first thought for me ever, which was like, I guess in a way I'm uh, a little, you know, I mentioned earlier, I'm a little contrarian. I'm definitely a savage capitalist and I believe fully in like, you know, uh, you sort of eat and survive or you don't, you get eaten. And I guess in a way, what we're, what we're trying to do is not, not pick sort of who survives and who doesn't, but we're trying to kind of create a, a ecosystem or a habitat in which, you know, the people that, that sort of, you know, uh, make the smartest moves. And, and that has to be part, like technology has to be a part of that these days. And so I love the stories of like, what well, we're enabling emerging managers to tell a different story that, you know, they otherwise couldn't, and they couldn't have raised the fund and stuff like that. So it's just so exciting to, to hear those sorts of stories. And a lot of times you don't necessarily get to put faces and names and all that and hear about the outcomes, but I, it never gets old to think about like, that we're facilitating an ecosystem that's so important. And that we're like enabling people who might be underdogs and didn't come from, you know, these sorts of backgrounds, like I didn't to, to do something and, to have it be meaningful and like it just it's all the feels for me you know i just love it so much that's great it's beautiful i i uh, that that's exactly the it's the same level of intensity that all the inevitable you know founders <laughs> that, that we partner with have and uh, i i wonder just something that occurred to me if you guys you know have access to all that data uh and and, and i remember this is you know early days at Sembri, I, I pitched the ceo i was like we have the, their email volume at the transactional level, so we know who's doing well and who isn't. You know, and all these early customers, Uber, Spotify, Fitbit, Pandora, Yelp, Booking.com, you know, and all, all it was, why don't we launch a small fund that then became a thing with Twilio and Stripe and all these other developer company, developer tool companies investing in their customers? Yeah. So 
when, I guess my question is like, when is Altria launching a data-driven fund of funds? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the topic I can't get. No, um, you know, it's funny. We, um, so, you know, the company up until last summer was, was entirely bootstrapped and um, that, you know, the sort of concept of like compensation, you know, of each other, like, you know, us and our customers early on, uh, you know, cash was pretty important to us, but there were so many times when it was sort of like, well, both sides where we were like, hey, well, like, what, why don't we trade, you know, a little something like maybe a small commitment and you no know, charge for the software and then vice versa. We used to have, <clears throat> you know, customers that uh, would, well, you could tell who was using their CRM well, too, right? Because like they would every couple six months, they'd call us again. But even in the sort of sales process, like where we, they'd come looking uh, for a, you know, kind of CRM type stuff. And, and they'd be like, well, like who's backing you? And like, well, this is it, like your bootstrap. We were an, an early, early Techstars company, like in 2007. And that was the only outside capital that, that we took. Um, and so, you know, it, it was interesting. There was always that, that sort of thing. Uh, we take the data thing seriously because you know, at the end of the day, what, what, what I'm saying that, that we enable is like differentiation through data and technology. And, you know, that there, there's always been a little bit of sort of, how do we, you know, kind of want to dabble in that? Certainly it's something that, uh, you know, could potentially be done one day. I don't know. I can't say too much about it, um, but it's interesting thought. Yeah, if you are, don't do let me know. I'm happy to introduce you to Elpis. <laughs> uh, You'll and, be the um, first one. And I'll come on the podcast and announce it. We'll, that's great. Deal. We'll deal. We have a deal. Yeah. Uh, I uh, Usually we end up with this like rapid fire question. So, uh, you do know, uh, ideal morning routine for you. Uh, you know, I, um, I, at a younger age, was more ambitious in the morning, ambitious. And now I just try to sort of get the kids ready, get them to school. And, like, I'm not trying to be too ambitious. So it's it's pretty, you know, let's focus on getting them fed, clothes, car, done. Oh, underwhelming, I know. But, again, no. just trying to survive here with the kids. Yeah. <laughs> One day I'll have them. I, uh, I, uh, it's interesting. The uh, – the, um... What is, uh, is there one thing that you started doing recently that significantly improved your life? It's maybe a new habit or something you bought, right? Yeah. Well, I, you can sort of see behind me. So um, uh, in the fall of last year, we, we built a, or we finished our basement and I put a little soundproof. like music See the beautiful Gibsons there and yes, the Marshall. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. There's a little bit of a flex. Um, and what the thing that I've gotten real into and the reason I did all that was because I wanted to get into recording music because I, I felt that I had like things going on and emotions and words and all sorts of things inside me and that like bottling them up wasn't doing any good. And so I wanted to try to like get them out somehow. And so I've had to learn. I'm big on learning. I've had to learn a lot of stuff here, but that it, I, it's been amazing because like, you know, sometimes I'll be up late at night, you know, playing with something and I'll wake up in the morning and then I'll hear it. It, it sounds totally different and it's like provides some sort of therapy for me. So that's kind of the thing that I'm geeked out to right now is like taking emotions and thoughts and turning them into something that you can hear. Very nice. And I don't know that it's any good, but it's doing it for me. Oh, it's wonderful. No, it is absolutely great. The, uh, the, I guess I have the, the it's the classical Peter Thiel question, you know, and then for you that, you know, uh, mentioned your contrarian a few times. So there's the one thing that you typically believe that, 
Others don't. Oh, man. Um, so I, I'll tell you what it is. I believe that there are few facts. I believe there are facts, but I believe that most things are a matter of our interpretation and that, and that we don't actually, you know, we've, we've come to be taught and believe that they're facts. And so there are facts, but like I would challenge and my wife, when she hears this, will uh, get a good giggle because it's like, I would challenge like the, the, uh, the, the sort of shirt you're wearing is white. Like, like oh, I, it's the color I see and I know is white and probably the color you see, but there's no guarantee that we're seeing the actual same color. So it's controversial at times, but few things are facts to me. And I think it's, it enables opportunity to have a conversation and understand each other when we can appreciate that we might not be seeing the same thing or that it's not actually a fact. I think the world's gotten a little carried away with like this idea of fact. And, you know, in many cases it's for me, interpretation being sort of, you know, pimped as fact. I think it's dangerous. So I love it. No, great answer. It's a, it's a very, uh, Alan Watts meets Carl Jung answer. Uh, yeah, totally. And people are so, they get so frustrated with that. When I tell them that they're like, I love the answer. It's like, what do you do with it? There's like, everything's just a gob and nothing's like solid and is how they hear that. And, uh, you know, I don't know. That's just how I feel. So that's great. Uh, well, Jeff, thank you so much. This was great. Thank you. Um, it was, uh, it was wonderful. And, uh, uh, look forward for, you know, uh, us continue to have these types our, of chats. All of our travels, too. And yeah, all of our travels. So we're going to have a lot of fun in um, in Brazil and when I come to, Can't wait. to Colorado as well. All right. So, all right, you. man. Well, hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to catching up, doing it online, and then, you know, all of our travels. So tell them, be well, take care of your people. Tell them hi for me, and we'll talk soon. See you, my friend. Bye-bye. All right, man. Be good. Bye. So there you have it. This was our wonderful episode with Jeff. I hope that you guys really learned tremendously with, with him as much as I did at least. So first person to be involved on the other side of venture capital. So first uh, non-founder guest, if you may. And we're gonna start having more investors as well on the platform. Uh, so if you also have feedback or ideas of the types of guests that you'd like to for us to have in these conversations do let us know i really hope you like the episode for those watching on youtube we're also available on all other platforms so basically spotify google podcasts apple podcasts and if you like the content leave us a review give us a like subscribe we always appreciate it it's a lot of work to put together high quality content and we do it because we care we do it because it's rare to have open conversations about some of the topics that we're talking about, specifically with this format. Thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. See you next time.